This episode is brought to you by Audi Canada. The Canadian Medical Association has partnered with Audi Canada to offer CMA members preferred incentive on select vehicle models. Purchase any new qualifying Audi model and receive an additional cash incentive based on the purchase type. Details of the incentive program can be found at audiprofessional.ca. Explore the full line of vehicles available to suit your lifestyle. The Audi driving experience is like no other. Patients who experience transient ischemic attack or minor stroke due to extracranial internal carotid artery stenosis can sometimes walk away without disabling consequences. However, these types of stroke do in fact require urgent diagnosis and intervention. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today I'm speaking with one of the authors of a review article published in CMAJ on the topic of extracranial internal carotid artery stenosis. Here to tell us why these non-disabling strokes can have a dangerous consequence is Dr. Varun Kapila, Division Head of Vascular Surgery at William Osler Health System in Brampton, Ontario. He's also co-director for the hospital's endovascular therapeutics program. Welcome, Varun. Thank you for having me. So can you start by telling us why did you want to draw attention to this topic? Well, our focus for this review, as you've mentioned, is the pathophysiology and management of extracranial internal carotid artery disease. And now that's a mouthful. So for the rest of this podcast, uh, I will refer to extracranial uh, internal carotid artery disease as simply carotid artery disease. In this review, we specifically focused on that symptomatic cohort of patients who have unfortunately suffered a recent non-disabling stroke or transient ischemic attack. These patients become symptomatic because of a plaque rupture in the carotid artery, which results in plaque or platelet aggregate embolization to the brain. And it's these particles that result in ischemic portion of the brain, resulting in a focal neurologic deficit. And we wanted to draw attention to this topic for a few reasons. First, there is an under-recognition among practitioners about the importance of urgent assessment, including both medical and surgical intervention for these patients. Many such patients are often discharged home with suboptimal medical therapy or sent to stroke outpatient clinics, which may have wait times of a few weeks or more. In this review article, we mentioned that the same heightened sense of urgency that we see patients with an acute myocardial infarction should be had in these patients with a suspected symptomatic carotid artery event. In the latter example, it would be egregious to discharge a patient home with outpatient cardiology follow-up, and the same should be true for these patients who have suffered an internal carotid artery symptomatic event. In this article, we included figure one to demonstrate the worrisome appearance of these plaques to provide the reader with an illustrated example of how truly worrisome these plaques are. The ulcerative and irregular nature of these plaques pose significant ongoing risks to the patient until they're treated. Secondly, we wanted to draw attention because we felt that practitioners were unaware about timelines for intervention. There have been many international guidelines, including excellent recent Canadian guidelines, which have all uniformly supported urgent assessment, medical therapy, and ultimate revascularization on an urgent basis for these patients. In fact, all of the guidelines are relatively concordant in terms of the recommendations that we review in this paper. Typically, surgical intervention, which we discuss as either carotid endarterectomy or carotid artery stenting, should be performed within the few days immediately after the index event. With this in mind, practitioners need to be aware that these patients require urgent timely assessment, 
urgent referral to a specialist in carotid care, and in most cases require admission to facilitate this process. Do you have a sense of why people don't respond urgently to these kinds of events? Is there a feeling that because the patient's symptoms have resolved, the underlying issue has resolved, or are people just not aware of the guidelines? I think that's a great question. And I think that question really has multifold in terms of answers. You you hit one of them um, exactly, which I think is a lot of practitioners, when they see patients with resolved events, they have false reassurance that the natural history is going to be in favor of the patient not having an event. And we know that that is not true. If a patient has had a resolved event, they still remain at extremely high risk for a recurrent event, especially within the next few days. I think another important consideration as well is that this pendulum of when we intervene has changed dramatically over the past few decades. Many practitioners may have trained in an era where initially carotid interventions occurred many weeks or sometimes months after an initial event. And more recently, that pendulum has swung towards more urgent interventions. And because of that change in the way that we practice, it may be that there is a knowledge gap that practitioners on the front line are just not aware of. Has carotid artery intervention become safer in recent decades? The answer is thankfully yes. So we know that the more volume that we do, much like any procedural type intervention, the safer the uh, procedure becomes. This has been definitely true with both carotid endarterectomy and carotid artery stenting. When you look at the original NASET and even some of the asymptomatic carotid trials, the periprocedural stroke event rate was actually quite high, sometimes as high as 5 to 6%. We know now that in modern trials that the risk, even in symptomatic patients, is likely closer to 1% to 2%, sometimes less in more experienced centers. This has also been shown in carotid stenting trials where the original papers have demonstrated periprocedural stroke events that were high that over time with newer publications also showed that as the numbers increased and the number of procedures increased, the risk to the patient in terms of stroke events also decreased. Varun, can you give us an idea of how common embolic events that result from extracranial internal carotid artery stenosis are? Embolic events from the carotid artery account for about 10 to 15% of all strokes. And that number may actually be undercalled as there are many patients or proportion of patients who have what we call cryptogenic strokes. In other words, strokes with no defined etiology. In many of those instances, ICA plaque rupture may be the culprit, but the degree of stenosis or narrowing of the wall may actually not be moderate or severe, and therefore practitioners may overlook the carotid in that situation as the culprit lesion. We know that after a patient has had an index event, The biggest concern is actually not the event that happened per se, but actually preventing the next event from happening. The literature suggests that the recurrent event rate ranges between 10 to 20% for the risk, and that risk is front-loaded, meaning highest within the next few days after the initial event. Therefore, it's imperative that we identify which patients have had a true event in order to prevent the next event from happening. And I guess it would be unwise to assume that a future event is going to be equally as inconsequential as the first event. It could be a severely disabling stroke the next time. That's exactly right. Some patients are very lucky where they have sometimes a very mild or transient TIA. 
And unfortunately, there are the other spectrum of patients that may have a devastating, sometimes fatal stroke. And often there's really no way of deciding or figuring out what that probability in which direction that will be. Okay, so let's go back to the bread and butter of examination. What are the usual symptoms and clinical features of this sort of stroke? How easy to identify are they? Well, the cardinal signs and symptoms that we watch out for are focal neurologic deficits. And typically, these are in the anterior circulation of the brain when we talk about the internal carotid artery. From an anatomic point of view, the internal carotid artery supplies blood flow to the entire brain, actually, through the circle of Willis, but primarily the anterior circulation via both the middle cerebral artery and the anterior cerebral artery. And this is very important because the specific area of the brain affected results in the specific focal neurologic deficit that we see clinically. In box two of the article, we list important signs and symptoms suggestive of such an event. While this list was not meant to be exhaustive, the most common symptoms that the patients may present with include acute facial droop, changes in their speech, monocular vision loss, or unilateral painless motor or sensory impairment of the upper or lower extremities. In each of these examples, you can see that these signs are focal and they correspond to a specific part of the brain. Sometimes this can pose a diagnostic dilemma. This may occur in patients who have had a completely resolved event, and therefore we rely on a patient's accurate description of the event. Sometimes the patients themselves don't worry about the event because it was transient, and I think that's really important. And this is sort of an important take-home message. For both patients and practitioners, that the resolution of symptoms does not imply a more favorable outcome as we've already discussed today. In fact, the risk to the patient remain high and the diagnosis remains emergent. The most important things for practitioners is to have a heightened sense of suspicion when the patient presents with a truly focal neurologic event. Whether or not the symptoms are transient, fluctuating, or persistent, if the diagnosis is considered, then an expeditious, urgent workup is warranted. I guess it's also important to drive this point home for caregivers, and I've seen some public information campaigns about this, that if you're um, a friend or a relative or a caregiver of a person who has a non-disabling stroke or a transient event, don't listen to them when they say, oh, it's nothing, I don't need to go and get it checked out. Absolutely. And this goes to the fact that uh, what we've been talking about today, that really we're not that concerned about the event that happened. We're really worrying about the next event that can happen. And this is really all about prevention. So how common are recurrent events? As we discussed uh, previously, unfortunately, these recurrent events after the index event are quite common. The literature suggests that recurrent events occur in about 10 to 20% of patients in which the risk is front-loaded, meaning very high within the first days after that event. In 2015, a systematic review estimated that the risks of a repeat event to be in the range of 6% within that first two to three days of an event, and as high as almost 20% within seven days after the first event. And this makes sense given the pathophysiology that we discussed with the high-risk, irregular, and often ulcerated plaque that we see in clinical practice. So let's move on to treatment now. What treatment should be started for an acute transient ischemic attack or a non-disabling stroke? Well, that's a great question again, and, and this is really multifocal. There are many important treatments that a practitioner should consider starting acutely for patients after they've had such an event. 
many of the treatments that we're not going to talk about focus on the global cardiovascular risks of the patient, given the overlapping risk, uh, risk factor profile shared by these disease processes. The goal of those types of treatments are to reduce the long-term cardiovascular event rate, which unfortunately are, are quite high in this patient population. However, there's many acute treatments that we focus on in this review article on reducing the recurrent stroke event rate in these patients, and I think they're important to highlight. For many years, single antiplatelet therapy with aspirin alone in the majority was the treatment of choice for the early initiation after a stroke. Many studies have confirmed, in fact, that this, there is a significant benefit for these patients when this monotherapy is initiated. However, stroke event rates remain quite high, and more recent evidence has looked at the combination of aspirin and clopidogrel for immediate secondary stroke prevention. Most recently, there have been two really well-conducted randomized control trials that have been published, and I'll take a minute to talk about those. So the first was the TRANCE trial, which is a trial performed in a predominantly Chinese population who had presented with a non-disabling stroke or a high-risk TIA. These patients were given either aspirin alone or a combination of aspirin and clopidogrel that was followed by a daily dose of clopidogrel after a loading dose for a treatment time of 21 days. The authors found a significant reduction in stroke events over 90 days in patients treated with this dual antiplatelet therapy over monotherapy. It's important to note that there was no increased bleeding event rate, and but because this was done in a Chinese population, there were some concerns about the generalizability of these findings. A second recent well-conducted randomized control trial called the POINT trial was performed in a more international population. They looked at a very similar group of patients, again, comparing aspirin alone to dual antiplatelet therapy using clopidogrel. In this treatment regimen, however, the duration of treatment was 90 days rather than the 21 days in the CHANCE trial. The results of this trial also demonstrated a significant reduction in major neurologic ischemic events after those patients had presented with an index event. However, there was an increased risk of bleeding. And it's important though, that majority of the bleeding events were not intracranial, and there was no difference in depth from any types of bleeding events that was seen in that paper. So what do these trials tell us? Well, it tells us that dual antiplatelet therapy is likely superior to monotherapy for patients that have presented with a non-disabling stroke or a TIA. We can also infer that the duration of therapy is important, and limiting therapy for a short course is likely optimal to balance that benefit of secondary stroke prevention and the risk of bleeding. Many of the international and even the Canadian guidelines that I mentioned have subsequently adopted these recommendations for dual antiplatelet therapy in a limited duration for purposes of immediate secondary stroke prevention after a symptomatic carotid event. It's also important to know that from these two trials that the patients who underwent a carotid intervention were excluded. This is important as some surgeons who perform a carotid endarterectomy have concerns about postoperative bleeding while the patient is on dual antiplatelet therapy. Speaking for myself in my own practice, almost all of the patients that I operate on for acutely symptomatic events are on dual antiplatelet therapy, and I've noted only minimal issues with respect to neck hematoma or bleeding concerns. This is also true for my co-authors in this article as well. That's good to have your personal perspective. At this point, I want to get on to carotid interventions, such as stenting and endarterectomy. 
At what point should a patient get these interventions? A carotid intervention should really should be considered as the, as the final common pathway for patients who have presented for a symptomatic carotid event. Certainly, there are some patients that for some reasons are not candidates for any intervention, but for the majority of patients that we're talking about, an intervention is the standard of care for patients and the treat, for the treatment of this disease. And when we say carotid intervention, as you've mentioned, we are really talking about carotid endarterectomy and carotid artery stenting. And there's been a myriad of trials that have looked at both comparing carotid endarterectomy versus carotid artery stenting in the treatment of symptomatic patients. In general, these trials have showed that carotid endarterectomy is a far superior stroke prevention intervention compared to carotid artery stenting. Those randomized control trials have demonstrated that the paraprocedural stroke events, meaning strokes that have occurred immediately or shortly following an intervention, are higher for carotid artery stenting for, versus carotid endarterectomy. The same trials have also demonstrated a higher risk of myocardial infarction if patients undergo surgical endarterectomy. It's important to note, however, that many trials have included simply a rise in troponin as a positive endpoint as a surrogate for myocardial infarction, and therefore may not, uh, those may not have been representative of a clinically significant or life-threatening myocardial event. In my own practice, my algorithm is that if the patient has an anatomically favorable carotid, uh, carotid lesion in terms of surgical accessibility or no contraindication from a physiological perspective, then they would undergo a carotid endarterectomy. And this represents really the majority of patients that we see. In the less common scenario, any anatomic or physiological concerns would then favor performing a stent. The recent Canadian guidelines echo this idea that carotid endarterectomy is generally more appropriate for patients that present with a symptomatic carotid event, simply that many patients are also presenting more than 70 years old, and that's supported by the data. The recent Canadian guidelines also suggest that intervention should be performed on an urgent basis in the first few days after the index event. And this is similar to the American guidelines that suggest carotid intervention should be performed between 48 hours and seven days after the index event. Varun, I'd like to ask you about how you talk to patients about this, because endarterectomy is the treatment of choice, as you've said. Do patients ever, when you consent the patient for surgery, do they ever wonder how it's going to be once you've tied off the blood supply to a part of their brain? How do you explain that to them? How do you explain that they're still going to have adequate perfusion? That's a great question. And it's something that I face, you know, almost every day when uh, we see these patients. And I think that, you know, often we use plumbing analogies uh, to try to talk about vascular diseases, and this is no different. What we usually explain with patients for this is that one of the misconceptions uh, for this procedure is that most patients require sort of clamping and then there's a decrease in perfusion to the brain. There are some patients that can safely have that type of procedure, but for the majority of practitioners in Canada, I believe that most of them use some form of shunt. And what that means is that despite doing the operative procedure, they actually will maintain flow to the brain because we're using some shunt to take blood flow from the heart and to continue perfusion to the brain. And that's typically what I use in my practice. And so the other thing I think as well is that when patients think of carotid surgery, they think of a very significant physiologically taxing surgery, and they're going to be in hospital for multiple days. In fact, the opposite is quite true. 
while there are significant concerning risks with uh, carotid endarterectomy in terms of you know causing a stroke, the risks are actually quite low, and most patients typically spend one day in hospital. And there's even some places in the country which send patients home the same day. But in general, I would say that most patients typically go home within 24 hours after their procedure. And when we explain it like that to patients, I think more patients are understanding and are more comfortable to undergo endarterectomy. To come back to your point that you made about needing to do the surgery or the intervention within two days, that would be optimal. What are the steps that need to happen for that? Because these patients sometimes will not present to a specialist, they'll present to their primary care doc. So what does the primary care doc need to do to get that patient to have an intervention lickety-split? Yeah, and I think the, the first thing is really is going to be increased recognition and decreasing the knowledge gap in terms of informing practitioners on the front line in our emergency departments and even surgeons and neurologists that these are really emergent diagnoses. And going back to what we talked about, creating a parallel between this event and a myocardial infarction, in the same way that we would think of a patient who's had a heart attack, we should think of the same thing for these patients. So if a practitioner suspects that the pretest probability for a patient having an event from their carotid artery, in other words, a transient or persistent focal event, then they really need to be sent to the emergency department immediately. So when the patients are in the emergency department, then it would be important for our frontline workers, including our emergency physicians and others, to ensure that they get expedited investigations, which include either an ultrasound, a CT angiogram, or an MR angiogram to get to the diagnosis of a worrisome plaque lesion in the extracranial internal carotid artery. And the steps then what need to follow is urgent assessment by a stroke practitioner, which may be a internist, a family physician, a vascular surgeon or neurosurgeon to assess the patient to see their candidacy to answer really a few questions. Number one, did this patient have a true event? Number two, are they a candidate for urgent intervention? And then number three, what type of intervention is the safest for this patient? And you can see that many of these steps, unfortunately, need to happen quite urgently. And in this review article, we make a point that, in our opinion, that many of these patients should be considered for admission because to get this done on a timely and urgent and effective basis is very difficult to do on an outpatient setting. So by having these patients admitted, we'd be able to expedite the workup and the time to intervention can be reduced. Varun, are you aware of any controversies regarding some carotid interventions and their timing? For sure. You know, many years ago, stroke practitioners would wait six weeks or more to allow the brain to quote-unquote cool off to recover prior to having a carotid revascularization. We know now, for the reasons that I've described previously, that that practice is incongruent with the natural history of symptomatic carotid events. As that pendulum has swung towards more and more towards more urgent interventions, the question then becomes how early is too early? There have been many studies which have demonstrated that very urgent carotid endarterectomy, meaning as that defined within 48 hours, may have higher periprocedural stroke event rates compared to those that were done between 48 hours and seven days. 
and some practitioners have concerns about very urgent revascularization of the brain parenchyma that recently has had an ischemic event. There really are some unanswered questions that I think are going to be the focus of significant carotid research within the next few years. Grouping TIA and minor stroke patients in terms of identifying the best timing for their intervention may not be the best approach. I think there's going to be a lot of body of research that will look at whether or not very urgent intervention may be more beneficial for patients who have had a TIA rather than those that need intervention because of a minor stroke and therefore, by definition, who have an ischemic portion of the brain. These questions really yet have yet to be answered, and I think we have significant value to help decide where that pendulum needs to be for a specific patient presenting with a specific event. Unfortunately, there's no randomized data to help us with this sort of fine-tuning of, of timing of carotid interventions, dividing them by the type of presentation they present with. Again, regardless, what is very clear, however, is that urgent assessment and workup, including carotid intervention, is required for these patients to prevent the devastating event of another stroke. In your article, you talk about subgroups of patients that require special consideration. Can you tell us about these? So there's certainly some specific subgroups of patients that require separate attention, and they really fall on either side of the spectrum of timing for carotid intervention that we've discussed today. On one side, there are patients that have very high risks of recurrent stroke with events if they do not have an immediate intervention. Those patients are those presenting with what we call crescendo TIAs. And that diagnosis implies a very unstable carotid plaque that has a continued, that has continued embolic events despite aggressive medical therapy. While these patients should be considered for intensification of their medical therapy, Immediate carotid intervention should be considered as these patients have a very high risk without it. Although these are uncommon, these truly represent the most urgent types of patients that we see. On the other side of the spectrum are a group of patients that may benefit from a purposeful delay to intervention for concerns that the procedure itself may actually cause more harm than the risks of recurrent stroke events. These patients are those that have evidence of intracranial hemorrhagic transformation, or uh, intracranial bleed, or even a large volume of ischemic brain. And by large volume, typically, we mean by representing more than one-third of the middle cerebral artery territory. Outside of these two groups, however, all other patients should be considered for interventions within the first few days after their index event. Varun, one last question. Have you a take-home message that you would like listeners of this podcast to really pay attention to? I think just in general, to summarize, that carotid events in this for symptomatic patients really is a medical emergency. These patients really should be considered on par with patients that have had a myocardial infarction and therefore urgent and aggressive therapy needs to be considered. I also think for practitioners, one of the things that I see in my clinical practice is what we've talked about before, that the resolution of symptoms does not imply a more favorable outcome. And I think by hopefully with this article that we'll be able to reduce that knowledge gap and improve care for patients that we see every day. Thank you, Varun. It's been a really good conversation. Thanks for talking to me today. Thank you. I've been speaking with Dr. Varun Kapila, Division Head of Vascular Surgery at William Osler Health System in Brampton, Ontario. To read the review article he co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app. 
and let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening. <laughs>